Acts chapter 2 and verse 42 as we get into this discussion, devoted church. And let me just lay the background, okay? The background, uh, the steps that we've looked at thus far are like this. Chapter 1, Jesus Christ says to his disciples, stay in Jerusalem until you receive what was promised. Verse 8 clarifies the promise. The promise is the indwelling of the Spirit of God that will transform weak people into powerful witnesses for the kingdom. Okay, that's the... That's the transition that takes place in chapter 1. Okay? Fascinatingly, in the second half of chapter 2, there is the need to get a completed group of people that are going to make up the body of Christ. Because the 12 apostles become substantial representatives of this work that God has already been doing in the 12 tribes of Israel, right? So we know that the church ultimately is called in Galatians the Israel of God. So in Acts chapter 1, there's this departure of Judas through his betrayal and death, and then the need to add one more back on so that the work of God will continue. Okay, so the the significance of that second half of chapter 1 is that God is completing the 12 apostles as a group, then upon that group of 12 that is representative of the people of God from the Old Testament, He pours out His Spirit and transforms them into a Pentecostal, Spirit-filled group of people that now begin to take the message of God to the world. Okay, and so as we came in towards the end of chapter 2, in our first discussion on this, we saw that there was a dramatic sense of the work of the Spirit, deep conversion experiences, and a fullness of the Spirit that was manifested through signs and wonders. That's what's happening as you move through chapter 1 and to this point in chapter 2. Okay, last week we looked at four commitments of a devoted church. They gave themselves to the teaching of the apostles, to fellowship, that is time together, to eating meals together, and to prayer. They were habits that the early church embraced, and they are the habits that transformed them personally and then made them transformational in the Roman Empire. Okay, so habits that were changing them. What I want to look at this morning is what kinds of changes were occurring in the lives of believers that devoted themselves to these practices that are listed in verse 42. How how will that affect the community? How would that affect the chapel of Warren Valley if we said those are the things that we want to devote ourselves to as a church family, assuming that verse 42 is a model for life in the body of Christ? How would that change us? If we said, I'm going to pray that God will make those things part of my Christian experience because they clearly were that for the early church what will the results of that kind of devotion be let's pick up in verse 42 it says they these that were go just go back up one verse verse 42 these that were added to the church about 3,000 that day so now we have 3,120 believers who have been filled with the Spirit of God and are passionate about life together. As a result of that, presence of the Spirit of God binding them together in something brand new, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, and I just love that statement, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then here's what happens. Everyone was filled with awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together. They had everything in common. 
selling their possessions and goods, they gave to one another as he had need. The word I put in my notes on that statement is that's radical. All the believers were together, had everything in common, and they were selling their possessions to, to and goods, and they gave to everyone as he had need. Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I would love to get up on Sunday morning and say, that's what God is doing at the chapel at Warren Valley. He, because of commitment to biblical norms, values, principles, whatever you want to call verse 42, because of that, the church was changing. People were becoming generous and loving in their expressions towards one another. And the world around them was watching and they were gaining favor and they were filled with praise and God was adding to the church those that were being saved. That's the picture that we kind of get when we move into this passage of Scripture. I think it is absolutely astonishing. What I want to do is break apart that section of Scripture into a few observations. Okay? Kind of looking at it this way. If we devote it to the principles of verse 42... I believe that verse 43 through 47 will become the experience of our church. And I, there's no way you can read through this and say, you know what, I really wouldn't want to be, have anything to do with something like that. Okay, I think you read that account and you're saying, you know what, I wish that was my experience. Okay, and I, I, let's just work our way through it and I think it will work as a motivation to go back to verse 42 and say, God, do those things in our midst. Do that in my heart. Start with me. The results of devotion in the early church. Okay, verse 44 says this. It says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Now, I'm, I'm going to work my way through this and I'll, I'll come back to a couple of the verses. Uh, just just want to kind of lay this out and say, okay, what what was the difference that it made in the early church when they embraced Biblical norms and habits. Okay, I think the first thing that you'll find is this. They had a joyful sense of community. Okay? They were together. Okay, so verse 44 says, All the believers were together and had everything in common. They were bound together at a level that was deeper than casual in their relationships. Okay? They were devoted. They were committed they were making decisions to, to expand the nature of their relationships with one another. A joyful sense of community. And the idea of this, this phraseology at the beginning of verse 44 is that they were a group that was in harmony. They, were a, a, they had a mutual concern for one another, which went something like this. Okay? It, was, it was reciprocal rather than something that was being encouraged by a few people in the church. It was something that people were doing for each other. This love, this passion, this concern was just part of the normal experience of their life together. And they understood that in their salvation, God had made them part of something larger than them as individuals. 
Okay, in America, we often tend to talk about salvation as a personal experience, as an individual experience. And that, at a certain level, that is true. God is, in this text, attracting people to himself and by his grace, delivering them from their sin. That's clear. But when he delivers them from their sin by the Spirit, what is he doing? He's placing them into a larger community, or if you will, a larger context that is called the body of Christ. We use the word today, the church. Okay, and the word church simply means the gathering. Okay, they were brought together by the Spirit of God, and they were given, if you will, new, new definitions or explanations and understandings of what they had become. Ephesians chapter 1, I'll just read you a couple verses so that you understand what this joyful sense of community was being driven by. Ephesians 1 and verse 22, the Word of God says this. It says, And God placed all things under His feet, that is under the feet of Christ, and appointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His, you know the next word? His body. Okay, so individual believers are being drawn into the kingdom of God. They're being made part of a new community that Ephesians 1 calls the body of Christ. Okay, so that all of the individuals that are coming into the body are making up something larger than themselves. Okay, they were being brought into a new community that at one level is called the body of Christ. In Ephesians 2, verse 21, it says this. In Him, that is Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple for the Lord. So what is the church? It's a group of people that gather together, are filled by the Spirit of God, and rise up as what? A holy place where God lives. Folks, do you understand how magnificent and incredible that is? In the Old Testament, God showed up in a place, in a tent, and ultimately in a temple. In the New Testament, where does He dwell? He dwells in the heart of every believer. And He indwells our hearts to draw us into something that is larger than ourselves. A big picture called the body of Christ, called the temple of God. And then there's one other description of it in Ephesians 2 and verse 19. Consequently, as a result of this work of conversion... By the Spirit, verse 18, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, meaning in relationship to each other. But you are what? You are fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household or family. Okay? Now, what does that mean? Okay, I think that means something amazing and significant for our understanding of what this gathering is about. It's about family. It's about a temple where God wants to reveal Himself to the world. So when you think about the church, for them there was this, this life together. They were, verse 43 says, living their life together as God's household, as His family. And because of some people's experiences, the idea of the church being a family, quite frankly, is what? Scary. It's scary. Why? Because we know human families tend to be broken and they're, they're messy. They struggle. But by the power of the Spirit, what does God want to do? God wants to create a beautiful, attractive sense of community in the church that is characterized by joy. So in 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul goes one step further with this. He says, the body is, that is the body of Christ, is a unit 
made up of many parts. Okay, so a healthy church is what? It's a group of people that gather together realizing that this is not about me individually. This is about what God wants to do through us as a group of people, corporately. Okay, self-centered, self-focused living, selfish living does not produce joy. Okay, it may produce temporary happiness and a craving and a need for more. What produces joy? A sustained joy. You know what does? A, A group of people who are filled by the Spirit of God and who are commissioned by Him to fulfill certain purposes in this world in which God has called us to live. That is what will bring sustained joy. So if you look at verse 46 in Acts 2, here's what the text says. It says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. So there were two levels of gathering in the early church. There was a larger corporate gathering, and then there was a smaller house-to-house gathering. That's the way the early church functioned. Okay, they gathered at the temple for large groups, and then they met in smaller contexts to share life together. What was the impact of that on their lives? Here's what it says. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, if I said to you, look, I have a way that you can have a glad and sincere heart this morning. Okay, I got a guaranteed way that you can have it. You know what everybody in the room would say? I want that. Well, the early church had that. They had hearts that were glad. And I, the idea here is simply, they were happy. And they were sincere. And the word that, that kind of floated in my mind as I, as I studied through this text was, there was a contentment that was present. Glad and genuine. Life without a mask. Okay? Because they understood that God had brought them into something that was a, a new, selfless community that was characterized by an undying sense joy an absence of rivalry because there was sincerity they met regularly because they valued life together it was an essential part of their experience psalm 133 is the text that comes to mind how beautiful and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity and how true it is that the opposite is equally in as much as unity brings joy division brings what profound unhappiness Okay, And any parent knows this experience. When your kids are getting along, you're like, this is a very good day. And when they're at each other's throats, you don't say, hey, honey, I can't wait to get home. And you can enjoy with me what we're experiencing today in our house. Okay, it's like, no. When when there's that division and tension, it's it's not fun to be around. You say, I got to go out and take, I got to get a break. But when they're getting along, you're saying, you know what? I love this. And in the early church, they, they were sharing life together. It was attractive. It was beautiful. It was something that if you were sitting there watching, you would say, I'm enjoying this. A pleasure and a delight. So there was a joyful sense of community that was fostered and propagated as the Spirit of God took over. Let me ask you this question this morning. Do you have a genuine concern for unity amongst yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ? Are there people that you could say this morning, this is a person or this is a group of people that I have a genuine concern for the well-being of? And it is not simply something that comes and goes with a collective sigh with announcements in the context of church life, but it is an ongoing experience in the temple from house to house. Okay, that's what the early church had. 
There were times when they were committed and devoted to being together. And the Spirit of God was producing for them this idea of a glad and sincere heart in larger and smaller contexts. Now, the other thing that I notice in this text as an outcome of this devotion is that there was a, a radical habit of selfless service. Okay, because I'll be honest with you. I, I read through this portion starting in verse 44. The believers were together, had everything in common. They were selling their possessions and goods, verse 45. They gave to everyone as he had need. Okay, that, that is not a very American view of the church, is it? But that's what they had. Okay, there was, there was and, and I'm going to be honest, I, I don't want to be hypocritical in preaching on this text this morning. So I want to qualify what I'm going to say by saying, I'm not going to tell you by any stretch that I am here by any stretch. Okay, but there, there's, there is a call in this text that, is some, that is, speaks of something that is radical and almost unthinkable, almost troubling to us. The degree to which they were committed and devoted to selfless service is staggering. Verse 44, it says this, they shared all things. Okay, now, that can mean certain things, and it may not mean certain things. So let me just kind of tweak this out for a second and say, okay, what does it mean that they had everything in common and that they were willing to sell things in order to cover the needs of those within the context of their church family? What does that mean? Okay, I think at one level I have to say this. I don't think it's, it's a rejection of the notion of owning personal property. Because as I go ahead a little bit further, I think it's Acts 12 and verse 12, you find the churches meeting in homes. 1 Corinthians 16, they're meeting in the house of a lady whose name is Nympha. Okay, kind of a funny name, but... And then there's also this idea that the church is meeting in public places. So people had property and goods that they could share as needs were present. I also don't believe that it was a forced kind of communism. Okay, everybody in the church was forced to give up everything that they had. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, if it wasn't that, okay, which I think we can rule out based on observations through the rest of the epistles, then what was this having everything in common and sharing as people had need? Okay, and I think the answer is something like this. There was a willing and generous release of personal property to meet needs that arose within the context of the church family. Okay, I think you at least have to say this, that there was a willing, generous surrender, not under compulsion, not a have to, but there was a willing, generous surrender of personal property to assist in meeting the needs of others. Here's the picture in my mind. People actually took things that they owned. Not, and this wasn't like, okay, I'm going to hold a yard sale to help you out. They took things that had value, sold them so that they could meet a need that was present in the context of their church family. Okay, you know what I say about that? And, and you, you say, okay, that, that kind of makes it a little more tolerable. But can I say this, that that is radical? They took something that they had, sold it, or deposited, or, or uh, redeemed it, so that they could give what they had to meet the need of somebody else in the community. What was that? I, there's some type of a, a habit of selfless service that is arising in the early church that is giving them deep joy and contentment. Why? Because I think this is true. They were freed from the bondage of material things. 
why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, warn them who have more than they need, rich, to be generous in good deeds. Why? Because the love of money is the root of what? All kinds of problems. Well, this church, as you read this, what are they experiencing? They're experiencing harmony and unity, which means they are at some level free from the tyranny of material things. And that is a beautiful picture that was being experienced in this church. No one was claiming exclusive rights to what they had. Okay, and it just, just give you the illustration that, that, that all of us are familiar with. You, you watch you know, children and, and sometimes us as adults and you know, that, that idea that it's mine. Okay, it's, it's my property. It's exclusively mine and you can't touch it. Okay, it's that kind of an idea. In the early church, what was it? There was, there was a, a loosening up of that kind of, a, of an attitude. They were, they were buying into this idea of being selfless and serving towards others. And the other thing that to me is amazing in this text is that when it says in verse 46, and, or uh, yeah, verse 46, that they were selling their possessions, the, the tense of this verb is that this was happening on a repeated or habitual basis. Okay, it wasn't something that just happened at the beginning of the church and never occurred again. This was in a sense, normative, there was a habit of selfless service. They did it, the idea would be, again and again, they liquidated and sold personal property in order to give ongoing care. And that care was voluntary and occasional. Okay? It wasn't, under, it wasn't you have to do this. It was, I want to do this. And it happened on an occasional basis. They, they were that sensitive to the needs that were present within the community in the unique setting of the early church. Okay? So there was a habit of selfless service. Galatians 6.10 encourages us in this way. It says, Do good to all men, but especially to those who are of the family of faith. The believers. Okay? So we have, in the context of church life, we have a unique sense of responsibility to each other that at times may lead us to have to liquidate something in order to meet the needs of others. That's what the early church did. Okay? And so I think it causes us to look into our own lives and say, okay, God, if I'm going to be your light to the world around me, if the church is going to rise up and be a distinct, unique community within the larger community that we live in, what will that require of us? What, what types of radical sacrifices will capture the attention of a watching world. Okay? A, a, a place where people are distinct from the world around them. Okay? That's, that's what's happening here in the church. And I think what's fascinating as I read this is that all of that competitive me-first stuff that was so prevalent amongst the disciples of Christ has what? It's vanished. And you say, okay, how did that happen? How did, how did these guys that were arguing over who's going to sit on the right hand, who's going to sit on the left hand, who's going to be before, where did that go? Okay, here's what I believe. I believe that was dissolved by the presence and power of the Spirit of God. And as they yielded themselves to the power and presence of the Spirit, what happened? They were being changed. They were being transformed into something that became very attractive in the ancient world. Would that God would do the same kind of thing in the context of our homes? In our marriages, where a, a habit of selfless service would so overcome our relationships as Christians that the watching world would see Jesus at work in us. They really cared for each other. And this is why I think it's important. The first point is to say they had this very simple, loving community. They were together. 
But in that context, there was a habit of selfless service. Okay, that was powerful and that allowed them to become the light that God wanted them to be through actively seeking and doing good. There was also in this church a Godward affection. And this picks up in verse 43 and also in verse 47. And this, these thoughts are kind of interspersed throughout. It says in verse 43, After the Spirit of God came and they devoted themselves to the teaching and work of the Spirit, what happened? Everyone was filled with a sense of awe. And many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. Get down to verse 47. And they were, in this context of being glad and sincere in the hearts, they were praising God and drawing the favor of all the people. Okay, so there was a sense of awe. And the idea here, the, the, the Greek word is phobos, okay, where we get our word phobia from, fears. A sense of awe, a foreboding sense, okay? What is this? In this, in this context, I think it's clearly this. It is the response of humans that are filled with the Spirit to the divine work of God. They had seen God at work. They had seen God validate the preaching of the apostles through signs and wonders. Through things that struck them and that caused them to be amazed. As God was validating this, this message that the early apostles were preaching and proclaiming. Peter can say something this strong. You go back to Acts chapter 2 verse 19. Okay, just look back there. Here's what God says through the prophet Joel. He says, I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Verse 22, Peter can then say this. He can say, men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs that God did among you through him as you yourselves know. Okay? What's Peter's point? You saw God work and you ought to respond to that work of God that you have seen. Okay? The idea in this, in this context, I think, is something like this. The early church saw God work and when they saw God work, a sense of awe and inspiration and fear of God came and began to change them. They surrendered more and more to the Spirit of God. As they experienced this powerful work, everyone, the text says, had a sense of awe and amazement, realizing what God was doing. In verse 47, it says that this worship was characterized by giving praise to God. The community expressed a shared worship in praise of the work of God that was drawing together this new body called the church, in which He was dwelling by the Spirit. So, I think the principle I would, I would draw out of this is something like this. God does not come to affect and nudge your life. Okay, when God showed up in the early church, He came to transform and to change. And folks, here's the thing. If you have sensed the conviction of the Spirit of God about your own sin and your need for a Savior, God did not come simply to cause you to feel bad about certain behaviors in your life. God has come to change you. Okay, and that's what this is all about. He came to bring radical transformation. And when He brings that, what does He want us to do? When you see Him work in your life, what does He want you to do? He wants you to say so. 
And that's what happened in this early church. They saw the work of God, verse 43. And what did they do? They, when they were together, they were giving thanks to God. In simp- identifying simple ways in which God was at work in their midst. And there was a sense of, of fear, of an appropriate sense of awe and reverence. And they were praising God. Saying, God is visiting us. <clears throat> and showing us amazing things. Well, as a result of that, something very beautiful begins to happen in the early church. And it's recorded for us in verse 47. It says these people, as a result of this transformation, were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Okay, so when the church adopts the priorities of verse 42, what happens? Okay, what happens? A watching world sees the change that the Spirit of God can bring in people's lives. And he starts to work. Okay, a watching world sees a group of people that are happily united together, that are selflessly serving one another, that are praising God for what he's doing in their midst. And what happens? They, one writer put it this way. He said, when God sets a church on fire people will come to watch it burn. When God starts to work in your life by commitments to the basic principles, this is not complicated stuff, folks. This is simple stuff. Verse 42 is not overwhelming in terms of what it requires of us. Will it it take some sense of radical commitment and change? Yes, and I don't want to minimize that in any way. Okay, you're not going to experience this kind of effect of God on people around you by a casual commitment to Jesus Christ. Okay, these people were not casually committed. They were, verse 42 starts out, they were devoted. They were committed. Okay, their lives were being changed and they were willing to be changed. And God started to work in their midst and selfless service took over and joy came. And God began to do what? He began to attract people out of the world. By their acts of service and their generosity and their joy, people wanted to know where it came from. And we know the answer to that is Acts chapter 2 at the beginning. Pentecost came, Spirit of God transforming, building a new community for the glory of God. But the last thing that I would want to say as an observation from this text is this. There was an effective gospel sharing or gospel proclamation that came in this church. There was, and I don't know how you, in your own experience, how you feel about this, but for me, there are times when sharing the gospel, it it, it comes easily, okay? Because there's a freedom in the joy that Christ is giving. There's a freedom that comes in selfless service to others. And when that's happening, it's easier to to go out and to communicate for people, to people, what God has done for them. But sometimes it's hard because we're not participating in the, in the benefits of the Christian experience and, and, the, and the body of Christ. And that work of sharing the gospel, we know we should do it, but it's, it's what? It's like, it's duty as opposed to delight. Okay? God came on this church in a way that changed them. They committed the basic principles. And all of a sudden, what's happening? People are being added to the church. How often? Day by day. Okay, that... Would you not love to see something like that? That God would come and begin to work in such a fascinating way. In verse 47 it says, they were enjoying favor. 
Okay, there was favor with all the people. That doesn't necessarily mean the leadership as we're going to see when we get into chapters 3 and 4. But the common people were watching what was happening in this new thing, this new body, this new building, this new church that God was putting together. And they're watching and they're looking with a favorable eye on the church. But folks, here's what I believe. I believe often the church strives to make its presence known by being loud about certain issues. Okay, that's how we strive to make our presence known. You know what God wants us to do? God wants us to go out into the world as a joyful, selfless representative of His kingdom. That's what He wants us to do. A lot of times, we're antagonizing people around us. We're ruffling feathers around us for the sake of things that in many times, in many cases, are merely political. Okay, now I'm not saying that we shouldn't stand for moral issues. We need to and we should. But we need to be as passionate about loving brothers and sisters in Christ and loving our neighbor as ourselves as we are about those things. And I believe the result will be something like what's going on here. There was, one writer said of this text, a winsome attractiveness about these believers. There was something attractive. Something that... And you know, you meet certain people and you're like, you know what, I would like to spend more time with them. They seem really nice or really neat or whatever. We have ways that we describe that. The early church was experiencing a favor. People were looking at them and seeing a, a genuine change and a degree of sacrifice that made what they were doing desirable. Okay, that to me is amazing. They had been so transformed into the hands and feet of Christ that people, in the same way that people watched the life of Jesus and were attracted to Him. The watching world of Rome in Jerusalem was what? Attracted to this group of people who had been graciously and gloriously transformed by the gospel of Christ. Its presence and witness had become credible, believable, because they saw what they were doing. And it also became something that was infectious. People wanted, whatever they had, people wanted to catch it. Okay? They, it, it, they, they, wanted, they wished it was viral. Okay? That they could bump up the Christians and, and begin to participate in these beautiful things that were happening. Okay? That's the idea. And as a result of that attraction, what happens? Well, verse 39 and 40 give us some indication Okay, it says, this promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with any other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Okay, so you find what's happening. These people are boldly proclaiming the truth of the gospel and living the truth of the gospel. And God is doing what? God is attracting people to himself through them as instruments. We get to the end of verse 47. It says, and the Lord was adding daily to their number, okay, those who were being saved. Okay, as this church stood up and said, we will be committed and devoted, what happened? God came alongside and empowered their witness so that glorious things began to happen. Okay, that's what happened in the early church. God was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, Here's what jumps out to me as I think about this. I go back to to chapter 1 and I realize that as Luke is writing in verse 1, he says, In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach. 
until the day that he was taken up into heaven. What did Jesus do and teach? Can we just be very simple with this? Jesus loved people. He met physical needs. And Jesus shared the truth of the gospel. And the disciples are left to do what? To do what Jesus did. To go out and to share the truth of the gospel and to meet needs that are present in the context of the community for the glory of God. That's what the early church did. That's what this church is doing. And what is God doing? God is using their devotion to one another and their devotion to selfless love to attract the watching world. And so what I see in this text is this. I see two truths that come together. One is the great commandment, love God and love your neighbor. And I also see the great commission, go into all the world. I see both of those things happening in this context. And I think it's a beautiful kind of linking of these two ideas. Because we start to see what Jesus is talking about when he says that that we are to love God and to love our neighbor. Okay, a love for God that is transforming us in relationship to others. Which leads to the fulfillment of the great commission. Okay, both of which are, in this context, linked together. There's selfless acts of service, and there's evangelism taking place together. Okay, so what does that say about the kind of life that we should live? And, 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 and what is the connection between these ideas of selfless love and proclaiming the gospel? How do, they, how do they link together in the context of church life? And I think I would say it this way. Acts of love and gospel sharing are matters of obedience for the church. Okay, they are the things that we are to be doing in our world. Okay, acts of love and gospel sharing. And when we do that, what are we doing? We're partnering with God in fulfilling the great commandment and in fulfilling the great commission, which is to love others and to share with them the good news of the gospel. Okay, so in this context, what do we see? we see that that two things are inseparably linked together. Okay? Concern for meeting the needs of my neighbor are are inseparably linked with what in this text? With gospel sharing. Okay, as the church loved others, what happened? The world became curious. They they had a favorable understanding of what they were doing. And they came and began to want to, what's going on? What has changed you? The gospel in that context is shared and what's happening. God is adding to the church daily those who are being saved okay so this this linking together of evangelism and responsibility for needs ties together in a way that is absolutely transformational in the first century that's what god was about and that's what god was doing now you ask yourself okay can i find this linking together of these ideas at other places in the bible and i just share with you two illustrations. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse, and verse 8, he said this. He said, we loved you so much that we shared not only the gospel of God, but ourselves as well. And I read that verse and I was like, there it is. What is it? it it's, it's people that came to do what? To share the gospel of God. Yes, and that should happen. But what does Paul then say? We shared ourselves as well. We poured out our lives to see God raise up the church in Thessalonica. And the life of Jesus, I find this in a very fascinating setting. Because if we're to continue what he 
did, then we have to say to ourselves, what exactly did he do? Okay, toward the end of his life, John the Baptist sent a message to Christ. And the question was this, as John was in jail. The question was, are you the Christ? Or do we look for someone else? What was John saying? John was saying, I want to see if in this Savior there is the, the hope of the nations. Is this Him? And Jesus replied to the messengers and said, go back and report to Him. And, and, and just the verse that proceeds says, at that time Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, gave sight to many who were blind. So He replied to the messengers. So they asked the question, are you the Christ? What does Jesus do? Jesus does the works of the Messiah, right? He starts healing people right in front of the guys that asked the question. And then he stops and he says, oh, go say this to John. What you have seen and what you have heard, the blind receive their sight. The lame walk. What are all these things? They are all acts of kindness to relieve pain and poverty. That's what he's doing. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Okay, folks, what does that say? It says that me meeting my neighbor's needs is not all that Jesus did. He did it. But He also did what? He also proclaimed to them the news of Christ. The news of the cross. The glory of the gospel. So in this text, what happens? In Acts chapter 2, the gospel is linked together with acts of selfless service. The world that's observing that is attracted to that kind of a church. And people are being added and are being converted. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. The gospel is the fact that the judgment that John the Baptist foretold was coming. And he warned them. Remember, he said... Get your hearts ready. He's coming. And what did John expect? You know what John expected? John expected that when the Messiah comes, he is going to bring judgment, taking away those that are judged, and he's going to establish his kingdom. What had Jesus come to do? Jesus had come to bear the judgment that John proclaimed. The Messiah had come not the first time to bring judgment, but to stand in the place of rebels and to bear the, the judgment that John proclaimed was coming, who did it fall on? Does it come? The answer is, oh yes, it comes. But where does it fall? It falls on Jesus. And, and, and folks, this morning, if you don't know Christ, this is the good news. Jesus came. You know what He did? He did all kinds of things to attract attention to the Gospel. And then what did He do? He preached the good news to the poor. Why? Because it is possible to relieve people's social and economic needs and have them still spend eternity separated from God. So what did He do? He relieved social and economic needs, certainly. And He preached the Gospel. And, and, and what made Jesus credible? You know what made Jesus credible? The kind of love that he lived and practiced before a watching world. They saw all that he did. They were attracted to him. And when they came, what did he do? Did he simply meet more needs? No. He preached the gospel to them. That's what the church is to do. We devote ourselves to God's purposes of selfless love and enjoying a joyful community together. And we worship God together. What's God going to do? God is going to begin to open the doors and attract people that don't know Christ 
to come into this, into this place of understanding the gospel, that the judgment that I deserve has fallen on Jesus. And all that I need to do is acknowledge my sin before God and trust in the provision of Christ, and my life will be changed forever. Folks, that's the privilege we have. It's why we should serve. Because Jesus has left us here to do something. To complete the work that He started under the power of the Spirit that He sent. His abiding presence so that we can go out into our world and make a difference. But not merely a temporary difference, relieving needs, but a permanent difference by preaching the good news of the gospel to the world in which God has called us to live. And we have to, if you will, strike the balance. We are to be people who do the great commandment. And that's what I think this text is by and large about. Love God, love your neighbor. We are to be people who take the good news of Christ to the world around us. And as we do it, we are partnering with God in what Jesus began to do and teach. And as the Spirit of God comes upon us individually, which is what Acts 2 is all about, the, the fire spreads and goes on to individuals, transforming them into witnesses who are brought into a larger picture of the body of Christ that goes out and serves the world around us. And God sweeps people into His kingdom. That's our privilege. That's our privilege. Father, thank you this morning for your word and the way that it does indeed challenge us.